0: You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello, welcome back to Accounted For. This is the podcast on a mission to expand your perspectives have you question the status quo, and get you inspired to action for your own career. So happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm so happy that you're tuning in once again to the podcast. If you're new, welcome. This podcast is part of OMD Ventures. That is my platform focused on building systems to optimize human performance. And on top of the podcast, the platform has a weekly essay and newsletter, and that includes my daily learnings from the week. So subscribe to the newsletter at omdventures.com stakeholders if you're interested and if you'd like to support the podcast even more because you're a diehard fan there is also a donation option where you can buy me various amounts of cups of coffee and i'll use those funds to reinvest into the platform and cover existing costs and find ways to continuously expand the service lines I've also opened up an individual coaching service to work with individuals to help them in their introspection and self-awareness journey. So if you are interested, then check it out on the site. And I think it's OMD Ventures slash coaching. And that is my shameless plug for the day. Today's guest is Cyrus Moradian. He is the CEO and co-founder of WISE. WISE with a Z. WISE is an exam test prep platform based out of Vancouver that services universities throughout Canada and the U.S. He bootstrapped his first company, Beat Your Course, which is also the precursor company to WISE, to help university students based on his own experience as a first-year student who struggled in university despite having all- all-star grades in high school. To Cyrus, going to university was a contrarian move as he comes from a house of entrepreneurs, from his parents to his siblings, and he's the only member of his family who has pursued post-secondary education. Needless to say, unlike his fellow finance majors who went into fields like investment banking, Cyrus went straight into entrepreneurship out of university. In our chat, we look into when it is really the right time or the good time to go from a bootstrapped company to one that fundraises what Cyrus believes is required to be an entrepreneur while he's gone through his own seven-year journey, and how Cyrus has thought about building a team where no one has left, and we cover much more topics. So I really hope my chat with Cyrus expands your perspective, has you question the default, and really inspires you to action. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For... To the end of the podcast, we have Cyrus Moradian. Hey, Cyrus, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks a lot for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it.
0: No problem. Cyrus here is the co-founder and CEO of Wise, a company based out in beautiful Vancouver. And as we are recording, Cyrus has been very kind to offer this beautiful boardroom to admire the beautiful downtown skyline, We got the mountains, the oceans. So Cyrus, can you tell our audience a little more about the company Wise? What do you guys do? Yeah, for sure. Um, WISE is an ed tech
1: platform that specifically tailor makes review sessions for university students across North America. So uh, if you think of, for example, Khan Khan Academy as an amazing ed tech platform, which it is, you'll go there or you'll go on YouTube and you'll find general help for, say, calculus if you're studying math 100 at U of T. Whereas you could go on com and you could look for Math 100 Final Exam Prep then find an all-encompassing final exam exam prep session online customized for your specific uh, university course. And that specific semester taught the exact same way as uh, it was taught in
0: class. Gotcha. And for the audience, it's wise with a Z.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah.
0: And wise to me, I'm guessing that's the combination of the word wise and academy. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. And if uh,
1: anyone has ever uh, tried to get URL domains out there, they'll uh, know the struggle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I gotta ask, what what attempt was this at the URL domain? How many have you counted into?
1: Oh, we we definitely had well over uh, two hundred different names that we were experimenting with when uh, wise to me uh, we found out it was available.
0: Wow! <laughs> and do you go through a lot of like user testing, like to see will it come up easily on Google searches? Is there a process for that?
1: uh you know once we hit wise uh we were pretty excited about it so it kind of just uh hit all the the checks for us gotcha hit the ground running with it yeah
0: and so right now you know we're we're based up in vancouver at the moment but did you grow up in vancouver whereabouts did you grow up from
1: Yeah, I grew up in uh, Vancouver on the North Shore, Um, graduated from high school, uh, Sentinel Secondary, Uh, went over to McGill University where I studied finance, and then uh, moved back to Vancouver where I started my first education company, Beat Your Course, back in 2012. And then, uh, yeah, since then I've lived in Toronto for a couple of years.
0: Right, gotcha. But I guess Vancouver is home for you, eh?
1: Yeah, that's uh, where I've been born and raised, and uh, yeah, where I hope to spend many, many more years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and but in our previous meeting, you talked about how when you graduated high school, you graduated top of your class, and so it makes me wonder: growing up was like education, doing well in a- academics, like was that a big push when you were growing? Like, what was it like?
1: Uh, you know, um, I didn't start taking school uh, all that seriously until grade twelve, and I realized you needed a certain, uh, you know, grade point average to apply to different universities, and uh, that's when I'd say I started taking it more and more serious. But uh, it was always a personal desire to do the best I could in uh, in school and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, growing up,
0: did you have any kind of, you know? childhood dream careers that you wanted to do like
1: I always wanted to uh, start a business and be an entrepreneur really? so yeah that was uh, always my
0: dream where, where did that come from
1: uh, you know my whole family is very entrepreneurial my dad uh, is an entrepreneur <clears throat> my mom's an entrepreneur my older brother is an entrepreneur so uh, yeah most of our uh, family uh, dinners were uh, talking about business or entrepreneurship or something of the sort
0: <laughs> oh wow so do you mind sharing what kind of business each of your parents as well as your brother does
1: yeah my uh dad brought over uh quiznos uh into canada back in uh, 1996 and grew it uh i think over 600 franchises sold by 2003 um and then uh, now he does uh real estate and some other franchise stuff uh, my mom uh, started a, a company called kathy's small garden company And, uh, yeah, she's uh, also a social worker, and uh, she's had uh, many, many different types of side businesses over the years. And uh, my older brother uh, has a real estate development company.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I can only imagine that that probably was the norm in your household where it's like, oh, yeah, so I should probably be an entrepreneur. And you're probably thinking, yeah, I'm probably going to do this too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was lucky. My parents never really pushed anything on me. They didn't even push good grades on me. So uh, everything was about us uh, discovering, um, you know, for ourselves what we thought was uh, going to make us happy to live a good life.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned how so after school, you went to McGill to study finance and you had that big wake up call where, you know, you in high school, you busted your ass in grade 12, got a really great, you know. Uh, GPA, got into great school, and then university kicked in where I think you said how your first calculus exam, you got like a 51% or something like that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I applied to McGill and got in with a 94% average and then uh, showed up for my first calculus exam and uh, just passed by 1%. So, uh, you know, it, it, I think uh, no different than most people, uh, the transition from high school into university was going into a completely different jungle and uh, definitely uh, took a bad mark and uh, some bad grades first semester for me to kind of kick into gear about the, the new place I was in and how to best be
0: successful there. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems though that it it was a very memorable experience for you, the fact that you like, remember exactly what percentage it was like. Can you take me through what kind of emotions you might have been going through at that particular point, if you remember?
1: Yeah, so actually um, in university, uh, I went to McGill with my best friend and uh, we shared uh, an apartment together, first year in uh, residence. And uh, I remember we walked uh, to the exam and, uh, you know, we both knew we didn't do well, but we were very hopeful that, uh, you know, we would at least just pass. And we actually both got our marks back that we failed. Um, And it was a bad exam to fail because we couldn't move on to the subsequent part of our program. Um, My friend, unfortunately, uh, uh, didn't do so well, so there was kind of no hope for him. But I saw my grade as, you know, literally it was, you know, 54%, and I needed 55% to pass. So uh when I went back to school second semester, I arranged a meeting with my uh professor and I said, Hey, you know, I'd like to just review the exam to make sure that uh, you know, there wasn't any missing marks or something like that. And uh he reluctantly agrees to uh meet as uh, you know, was part of the rules. I, I'm allowed to review my exam and uh I start counting all the marks on it and you know, I got 55 on it, um, or whatever it was, it might've been 59 to 60, but I was missing 1% and I counted it up like six times in his presence. And then I passed the uh, the exam back to him. I said, no, I passed, I passed this exam. Like count it up, like really? And, uh, he counts it up and he goes, oh, you know, we're, we're very sorry for this mistake. And I uh, ended up just passing so I could enter the subsequent course the next semester. And, uh, that's kind of where me and my best friend kind of departed ways in
0: our program. <laughs> <laughs> so soon. And it's so funny that how, you know, you, you kind of went into an exam hoping to, hoping to pass and then you get this result. And this very meticulous nature comes in where you're like, oh, well, I looked at the rules and it seems I can go back and double check it.
1: Yeah, well, I was always, like, uh told by older students to, like, review your exams and, uh you know, if you uh, take that extra attention or care, you can get some extra percentage points. The TAs are, you know, maybe going to mess up, you know, and, uh you, you know, at least you can learn from the mistakes you made on your class to understand how to better do it. So, yeah, uh, I think I got, uh you know, well, I guess I got unlucky that they didn't just count it right the first time and actually pass me because my Christmas whole break was... uh uh, up in the air but uh, I'm happy how it all played out.
0: Yeah, and after that I think the big inflection point uh you talked you told me about last time was the moment when a PhD student like a TA brought 20 of you guys and really kind of grilled grilled in this new method of like learning calculus and after that I think you hit some like 90% on your next exam and from then on you're like oh yeah like now I know how to take these exams. <laughs>
1: yeah, so uh the next <laughs> semester Um, I uh, signed up for uh, a crash course with a PhD who walks to me in 12 hours, six hours on a Saturday, six hours on a Sunday, a week before my respective exam. And, you know, that first calculus exam that I showed up to was worth 90% of my grade the first semester. And the second semester was worth 90% again, just one final exam at the end. So um, about a week before, uh, unfortunately, I was still in first year and I still didn't have the best study habits or have it figured out. Um, but, uh, I was smart enough to, you know, start looking for help, uh, a little bit before my exam and I could sign up for something called a crash course with this, uh, expert instructor who would walk me through everything I needed to know to get an A-plus on the exam. And it sounded too good to be true, but uh, I heard from a bunch of upper-year students and uh, some fellow uh, classmates who did the exercise the first semester that uh, it it was definitely worth going to. So I showed up, um, and in 12 hours, this gentleman indeed taught me everything I needed to know. I walked into my uh, exam in the subsequent uh, math course at McGill, and I scored 96% uh, in the course overall. So it definitely had a, a huge impact.
0: And do do you remember the, was there some kind of mental model or some framework that the instructor implemented that you just used to carry over to other study habits?
1: Yeah, the, the fundamental thesis was just that um, for STEM courses that are systematic and methodical in the way you go about solving practice problems, that if you do enough exam-like practice problems prior to the exam day, then, you know, the question that you see on the exam could only be so different. So if you did enough practice and, uh, you know, you did enough variability in the practice problems that you did go about trying that, you know, hopefully you would learn the methodical processes behind how to solve any type of exam-like practice problem that was similar.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's, there's also like a lesson in actually taking exams, or, because I think that's, it's a completely different realm. People don't realize that there's one realm where you actually learn something, but exam-taking is actually a different technique on its own.
1: Yeah, exam-taking and, uh, you know, the the fundamental problem was being a first-year. And, you know, you're in this uh, uh, different world relative to high school where, you know, they told you exactly what to study and, you know, you maybe had your parents uh, driving you to school in the morning to make sure you went to every single class. And I think it was... Uh, more about having that kind of older brother, let's call it, in university to guide you into making sure you knew what was most important to actually study to prepare for the respective exam than anything. You know, if you even spent 100 hours Studying for the course, but you know, not a single question pertaining to that hundred hours you studied was on the exam. No matter what you wouldn't do so hot. So I think the notion of having this uh, older, you know, person while you're at this transformative time in your kind of life, uh, transitioning from a very different place into a new setting, to have someone kind of guide you and help you uh, is very important to you getting that confidence and you being able to be as successful as you can.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like this. This moment, though, made a very big impact on you because af- afterwards, it seems that you worked three years in McGill as a private tutor, and right after graduating, you started your own company, beat your course, which is the precursor to Wise. It was an exam prep company. You ran that for five years, but you still continue to run it, and two years ago, you started Wise. So you continued down this pathway of helping other university students take exams, actually ace their exams, and so I'm wondering, what what was it that got you very excited or really even like just interested in this way of just tutoring kids and helping them with their exams?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it was a month before graduating McGill. I had majored in business, majored in finance, was uh, looking at careers to go down uh, in finance, Uh, was talking to, you know... Same, uh, uh, you know, in, in students who were one or two years ahead of me and they had started their career in investment banking and they were explaining to me, you know, their 80 to 100 hour work weeks that they're having regularly, you know, working on spreadsheets or things that they weren't necessarily all that passionate about. So, I think that uh, in that discovery of what do I want to do next with my life, which uh, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, I I took the time to understand uh, what were the best next steps for me. Um, You know, I I was able to discover my passions and what I wanted to do next. And uh, uh, I think, yeah, that that, that month really uh, of just extra work uh, uh, in determining what I wanted to do made the biggest impact more than anything.
0: Can you kind of walk me through maybe examples or kind of what kind of steps you might have taken to understand yeah, this path?
1: step number one was uh you know what uh sector do you want to you know dedicate the next ten years of your life to? Um, And, uh, you know, pick a sector that's big enough that, uh, you know, if you want to start a company in it, that, you know, the thing you could start could get really big. Um, So, you know, through that, I came across education, which was something I was already very passionate about my entire life to to some degree. Um, You know, my father was an immigrant who never ended up graduating high school, uh, and then he dropped out and then he became a successful entrepreneur. My brother, my older brother, he uh didn't go to university he dropped out of high school as well and he became an entrepreneur and I was the first one in the family that uh graduated high school went to university but the you know even my younger brother uh you know he dropped out of uh high school as well so the notion of uh the education sector definitely not being set up and right for everybody had a kind of deep uh, impact in me already just observing it with my family members around me And uh, then, you know, education, you look it up, it's like a $10 trillion industry. It checks off the box of being a big enough industry. And it was something I was genuinely passionate about. And uh, one of the things that I could see myself dedicating the rest of my life to.
0: Mm -hmm. And during that time, what was it like kind of feeling out the potential like peer pressure of, you know, you have your friends or in finance majors, they're all going to go to investment banking. They might be even thinking or telling you, hey, SARS, what are you doing? Aren't are you going to go get an internship or are you going to go join a bank or get this you know consulting job or something like that how, how did you process that did you even feel the pressure at all like coming from such an entrepreneurial household knowing even like telling yourself that i'll oh, probably be an entrepreneur
1: yeah i think you know most of my friends around me it seemed like the pressure was more so coming from their parents than anyone there were definitely people who you know were trying or who did experience social pressure but uh yeah, my parents were uh, very easy on me in that respect, letting me find out uh, what it was that I wanted to pursue. And then with respect to social pressure, no, I, I never really felt any. Hmm.
0: And, and well, I guess I'm wondering, why did you even go to university? Your, your, <laughs> your father didn't go, your older brother didn't go. It seemed like there yeah, there were no pressures to go to university. The you know, examples that were set in your life, it was kind of like, well, yeah, drop out from high school. You're an entrepreneur. You kind of start a business immediately. Well, why go? Why go the extra, extra step? Extra <laughs> step. Yeah,
1: it was uh, a personal decision for sure. But uh, I just uh, I can't really say anything except for I just thought that was the next best step for me.
0: <laughs> and so then after you graduate, you came back to Vancouver. You started beat your course. And how did that? How did that begin? Where you thought, okay, well, I'm gonna start this company that helps with exam prep and so for the audience who may not be familiar with that company itself can you kind of walk us through what the current day business model is
1: yeah so uh beat your course uh um, uh, about the month before uh, graduating university uh, i I made the firm commitment to uh, start the education company that uh was really, um, you know, it drawed off my own experience uh, going from high school into university, that same experience I had where, you know, I almost failed that exam and my roommate and best friend did fail the exam. I said, you know, we can definitely make a bigger impact in these first year's lives and, uh, you know, offer the same exam prep session that I experienced the second semester, but, uh, you know, do it even better. And our um, uh, when we started out, our whole ambition was to uh, make a tech-enabled exam prep service where students could download an app in our cl- uh, an app in our uh, classes and communicate with the prof at the beginning of the end, which was our stab at personalizing the learning experience more so than uh, you know was currently the norm in these exam prep sessions that uh, other companies were doing, and that's kind of where we got started. But your course essentially would summarize 12, uh, summarize the entire semester's worth of course material in 12 hours, and we'd put on a final exam prep session at the end of the semester, about a week before the students' respective exams. The students would show up, a PhD or master-level instructor would walk them through everything they needed to know to get an A+, plus, and then we would uh, leave them with uh, a pretty hefty uh, ultimate study guide, um, which would contain you know, an extra 100 practice problems for them to try on their
0: own. Wow, and so when you first started, did you just go about like how? How did that begin? Were you, were you the one designing courses in the beginning, like going off of your own experience? Were you knocking on doors at like UBC or something, asking, "Hey, can I sit in on a class and take all the notes for this class as well?" Like, how how did it begin?
1: Yeah. Um... The, the longer stories is as it began, uh, I called one of my uh, best friends and uh, he was pretty similar to me in a lot of ways. And I said, I have this idea for this education company. Uh, just come join. And, you know, being the best friend that he was, he says, great idea. Let's do this. Um, and then uh, about a month later uh, of us wanting to do all of the same things since we were so like-minded and we were both business guys um, you know it's uh, we decided to go our separate ways amicably and uh, and then I was back at square one already and then I said okay let me uh, try this again instead of calling my best friend who's so easy to convince um, maybe I can just call like you know very different people who I really respect, who I think are really smart, and who I think could add a lot of value in a different way. And uh, so the two smartest people I knew, um, one of them was named Kashif, and I called him and he was taking a gap year from med school. And uh, I had studied business, he had studied sciences. So I said, you know, I need to get a science guy. So I called him and uh, took him out for a keg steak dinner, which uh, I'm sure he'll still remember t- today. And uh, he was uh, not hard to convince, but uh, he had a lot of great teaching experience and uh, a very different background than me. So I brought him on board and he had uh, experienced teaching for Kaplan, which was uh, a big bonus. Um, And then uh, I brought another, uh, then I said, okay, what about uh, a computer guy? Uh, um, And you know, the the joke I've said a 100 times over probably now is I wouldn't even start a sandwich shop without, uh, uh, you know, a computer guy. (laughs) Um, So I I knew a gentleman named Michael Maloon, uh, who studied software engineering at McGill and was uh, famous within my friends at the very least for being uh, uh, the guy to go to if you had a startup idea in tech. And uh, I called him and uh, I sold him on the, the dream of doing something big in education and uh, he came on board. And then uh, that's kind of where it all started to go in the right direction when we had some core founding members who complemented each other and who were all very different
0: and wanted to work on very
1: different things.
0: Gotcha. And what was the, in the first kind of early stage business model? Was it is it the same as what it is right now or is it completely different?
1: Um, you know, beat your course is, uh, relatively the same, um, as back in the day, um, significantly, you know, obviously higher quality and, uh, much better in many different ways. But, you know, generally speaking, it's pretty similar to, uh, the, the vision we had for when we started the really cool part of the business is when we incepted the idea for wise and wise was essentially, um, we had worked on beat your course for five years, I had interviewed over a thousand PhD and master uh, students. I had personally interviewed, trained, hired, managed, onboarded 115 PhD and master instructors, and uh, we had probably uh, we we had created tens of thousands of hours worth of uh, proprietary course material that uh, these instructors worked on over the years. And uh, we were going to scale B-Your course um, to Eastern Canada to all the universities on the East Coast. And uh, I, you know, said, wow, what if we were to take a tech-first approach to this and we were to use the last five years of hard work, you know, all of the material that we collected, all of the experiences that uh, we had um, and, uh, you know, take this business model to every major university and college across North America, let alone the world. And uh, that's when things started to get a little bit more fun and a little bit interesting. And WISE really is a manifestation of Be Your Course. Um Taking a tech first approach to it.
0: And did, did this evolution come to mind while you were in Toronto at that time with this kind of Eastern focused expansion?
1: Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back in my head, and uh, when I first wanted to start uh, an exam prep business, I actually had the original idea to start an essentially Wise-like service. But um, you know, starting Wise back in 2012 was you know zero experience in the exam prep industry or education in itself, and uh, uh, you know, just uh, I imagine you know uh, all of the. Uh, trying to do everything that we did with be your course plus everything that we're currently doing with wise you know it took five years to do what we did with be your course so you can imagine how uh it, it would have been tough for me to start wise from the get-go um but um yeah
0: yeah i think uh, that i think it was paul graham who talked about how you have to do the unscalable first before you can scale and it seems like you need to you had to have that five years of interviewing all these PhDs, collecting all these hours of material until you could maybe get into the point of feeling ready to now scale it to what WISE is now where it's this completely distributed learning system.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, when WISE was incepted, we had already had 50,000 students uh, go through our in-person exam prep sessions, and we had held over 1,000 in-person exam prep sessions. So you can imagine how much we learned doing that over five years to allow for us to create WISE and avoid all of the many mistakes, um, you know, we would have made had we not had that first experience. And you know, speaking of Paul Graham, um, yeah, I basically uh, you know two years ago when I was starting Wise, I read every single one of Paul Graham's essays, and uh, yeah, that's uh, the advice I would have for anyone who's uh, uh, interested in entrepreneurship: is step one, just read everything that uh, he's wrote in and put it out there.
0: Yeah, for for uh, listeners who are not familiar with Paul Graham, he's the uh, the founder of the famed startup incubator Y Combinator, and he's got a wealth of knowledge in his essay archive, so i i second that recommendation it's definitely <laughs> a gem to read through and so far you've been a full-time entrepreneur for about seven years and when we met you told me how you've never applied for a job before <laughs> and this is, this has been your full-time gig but when you first started wise you know you graduated we don't have a lot of money when we graduate and i think in, you told me how in your first year you had educated about 100 students through um, beat your course were you cash flow positive at within the first year or like how, how long did it take until you kind of got to that point where you felt comfortable maybe even paying yourself like a salary or something?
1: Yeah, it wasn't until, uh, the, probably the, in the third year of operations, uh, going into it, um, we knew that uh, if we wanted to make the aggressive jump in sales, uh, I was going to have to go full time at it. So it was going into our third year that uh, we did, we decided to make me full time. And then I took a pretty nominal salary to make sure I could keep the lights on.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you, when you first started, you took on, you were like a real estate, you got a real estate license. And then you also worked at uh, Muya's Burgers Fry's. Burgers, shakes, and fries. Yeah, in so franchise sales to like, keep the lights on for your for your life for the first two years.
1: Yeah, so I, I graduated from McGill and I went hard at work um, on beat your course and, uh, you know, after four months of it, uh, it, it really dawned on me that I probably wasn't going to make any real money for a while with this thing. So uh, I got my real estate license, which was uh, you know the the best thing for me to imagine you know pursuing the. Uh, entrepreneurial lifestyle while still finding a way outside of that to, you know, make an earning. So uh, I got my real estate license and then uh, started selling real estate. And uh, then I got an opportunity uh, through that to be the director of franchise sales at a burgers, fries and shakes franchise called Muya. And uh, again, it was uh, a position that was very flexible. So I was able to pursue a B year course and uh, get everything done um, that I needed to while uh, still uh, taking on that additional responsibility. It was essentially two full time jobs for the first couple of years.
0: Yeah. And the, the real estate is, is real estate like a secondary interest, interest like passionary for you? Or was it like some family influences that made you think, like, oh, maybe this is something I'll, I'll try out? Like, what, what was the emphasis behind that?
1: Yeah, it it, it was uh, uh, the the next easiest thing for me to jump into. My dad had been in real estate. My older brother had been in real estate. So uh, yeah, you know, it was the path of least resistance to keep the lights on.
0: And I guess it had the. I think the big thing is actually the flexibility of time, right? To actually be able to have the time to work on, be your course at the time where where like some full time jobs. Whether like if you went into banking as your money maker to fund beat your course you may not have had enough time to even work on your entrepreneurial journey it's something that people only really think about the amount of time you actually control in your day
1: yeah setting uh, your own schedule was uh very big for me
0: mm-hmm. and so you operated beat your course for five years um until you moved over to wise but over those five years you were bootstrapped i believe for yeah. the company what was the thought process behind staying bootstrapping as well as staying bootstrapped and not trying to go out and fundraise to grow it faster
1: yeah you know i think that uh beat your course was uh as much as we didn't want it to be uh, just a lifestyle business it was very much so uh, a, a beautiful lifestyle business and um you know i think the notion of raising money is uh best served for when you have an idea how to put, you know, gas on the fire, as they always say, not to try to make something into something that it's not. And even though, uh, you know, me and my Co-founders were very excited to try to find a way to pursue something outside the scope of a lifestyle business. The reality is, is we hadn't figured out what that was going to be yet. And uh, we only did uh, our first round of funding after uh, we incepted Wise and, uh, you know, um, felt like we had something that uh, could make a global impact.
0: And you talked about the lifestyle business part, so for for the audience who may not be familiar, what was your definition of what a lifestyle business would be?
1: Yeah, um, you know, maybe uh, not worthy or not, it's it's not necessary to have venture capital to uh, continue to grow it. And uh, that's kind of maybe the definition I'll leave you with because everybody's, uh, you know, definition of a lifestyle business is very different. Mm-hmm.
0: And so then if you didn't start Wise, would you... Which have been able to live comfortably with just having beat your course, in yeah. Operation.
1: Most certainly, very uh, uh, comfortably by uh, North American standards.
0: Hmm. And <laughs> but then you decided to then say, "All right, I've done this. Now I'm going to move on to something even greater." Was it like I'm just thinking, it it it, a part of me thinks it would have been so. There's got to be a voice in you that thinks that might have said, "Oh, Cyrus, this is this is great." this is, you know, let's, let's keep it at this. Why push on further?
1: Um, why push on further? For me, uh, it, it wasn't a hard decision to make. It was uh, like, why? It would be harder for me to answer why not push on further, mm-hmm. you know, than uh, uh, especially being in education. I want to make The biggest impact I possibly can. And at the end of five years with Be Your Course, uh, I felt like I had accumulated a different skill set than when I had first started Be Your Course. I had uh, accumulated a skill set that I thought um, could be used towards making the global education sector better um and uh then it's like if you genuinely felt like you had the skill set to make you know education better on a global lever, level why wouldn't you um you know pursue it to try to see if you could mhm
0: yeah and in terms of the business model as it grows um i've had the, another entrepreneur who was in the edtech space who had a b2b approach the individual um i think it was like episode 7 uh his name was Vikram and he he made software for, I think it was K to twelve, and his main clients were like the like the school boards in Canada. And you talked about the big challenges there. But right now, for you, like beat your course was is a B two C business. Why is it a B two C business? Is that something? How did you figure out like the B two C way would work for you and not like the B two B? Because I find that a lot of entrepreneurs, you read certain kind of blogs, like they'll say, oh, like you want, you want to focus on B two B because B two C is so hard. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think uh, the reality is, is both are hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, pick the, the the better one for your business. If mm-hmm. your uh, business is better suited for B2C, and you try to take a B2P approach to it, then you're probably going to be in trouble. And if you know B2B is the uh, uh, approach you're taking for a B2C company, you know, you're probably, in, again, at an uphill battle. So B2C um, was just the, the approach that worked best for the, the business model of WISE.
0: And with was- was there, um, do you remember a particular point where you felt this kind of validation where, okay, this is going to work? Or was it a series of different events that gave you this kind of conviction that this is going to work?
1: Um, the B2C approach or?
0: Yeah, like the B2C or kind of more this approach for why itself.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I just believe so strongly that um, we're not, Currently using readily available technology to improve the learning experience of students all around the world. Hmm. That uh, you know, I just know for certain that the future is of learning is going to be so much more fascinating and exciting than the current one that we live in. That. Um, there's uh, a very low probability of me not buying into uh, a better future of learning. So uh, as a result of that strong conviction for the future I see, I just uh, you know, couldn't see um, why it's uh, not working, being as progressive
0: as it is. Mm-hmm. And I think on the entrepreneurial journey, though there, there's discussion about um, entrepreneurs n- needing to know when to quit something and stop being stubborn and learning to pivot into something different. How do you, How do you think about that? Like, how do you kind of assess whether something's work, working or not? at what point is there? And when do you also know that no, it's we're gonna get there. Like we, we just have to push on a little further. How do you think about that?
1: I just uh, I think there's a big difference between a big pivot and iterating and improving and adjusting your business model each day. And uh, we're religious in iterating and improving wise uh, every single day. You know, even myself as uh, uh, the CEO, I want to you know level up myself and uh, continue to iterate and improve uh, as fast as I can as uh, a a member of this company. So uh, yeah, uh, I would say there's a big difference between the pivoting and the iterating and improving for me. And uh, thus far, for the most part, um, you know, there's just been minor to major iterations and improvements that uh, we've made, and we haven't had to do a massive pivot Mm -hmm. Um, although um, you know uh,
0: if we do we're ready for it and these kind of iterations these kind of small obstacles I think depending on how some people might look at it you can say that every day there's a small obstacle to overcome but when I ask you about an obstacle what's the kind of first big uh, event that comes to your mind
1: uh, yeah, well, you're, you're asking me a week where, you know, I'm doing uh, uh, 50 final interviews uh, with 50 different PhD and master students from across North America. So the biggest obstacle is making sure that uh, I show them a great experience and, uh, you know, I, I pick the right ones to onboard and uh, bring them into the wise mission. So that's my kind of current uh, obstacle. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a new obstacle each week. And even back to your previous point on, you know, pivoting. Uh, maybe uh, someone else would have classified that we've pivoted 100 times. It's just, uh, you know, for me, I would have called the things we've done so far to date as really iterations and improvements based off of what the customers were telling us that uh, we could do to make their experience more optimal.
0: Mm-hmm. And in my, in my own journey, I've, I think right, it's just been past a year, so I'm a baby compared to the amount of years that you've had <laughs> but even then again like the first year I've had so many learnings from a lot of mistakes and I can only imagine how many more mistakes I'll make as I learn for you over the last seven years what kind of uh, key learnings have constantly stuck with you as you constantly find yourself remembering that mistake and go, oh yeah I remember that time to I can't make that mistake again I can't make that mistake again are there some that come to mind as these very material ones that continue to pay dividends
1: you know, I might have to come back to that. Uh, yeah. I can't think of any uh, particular uh, mis- mistakes that come to mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, the notion of uh, always uh, improving every single day. Um, you know, as the CEO of the company, uh, you know, the company is only going to get as uh, good as I can, is only going to improve as much as I can continue to improve as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that uh, I feel strongly about everyone at our organization. You know, all of us need to continue to improve in order for the uh, company we're building to actually end up improving as well.
0: Mm. And in terms of that, as as the CEO, as a leader um, of the company, you, you mentioned briefly your friend, um, Michael Maloon, who was the computer science tech guy (laughs) that you brought on he's been with you for seven years
1: yeah six years six Six, years yeah
0: six years and I think right now you said you have 14 full-time employees and none of them have quit on you and so (laughs) it makes me wonder what what do you think is a, a big factor of them staying on with you and continuing to push on this mission with you
1: yeah I think the the biggest thing is leading by example And uh, yeah, I think uh, most of them will, uh, or all of them will, uh, tell you that I lead by example. And, you know, uh, I'm usually the call it uh, as an expression the first one in the office and the last one to leave. And uh, I think when you're building uh, uh, something great and you're trying to attract great people, um, the notion of making sure that uh, you lead by example might be one of the the most important things that uh, I would say.
0: Is there a particular feedback that you remember fondly on that validated that, oh, yeah, I am doing the right thing by leading, by example, like something that one of your employees might have said to you in passing, or maybe even like a formal feedback?
1: Um, you know, the reason I stuck on that one is I got a really nice birthday message from, uh, it was my birthday yesterday and, uh, shout out to Peter. Uh, he gave me a really nice birthday message that, uh, you know, was, uh, him emphasizing that it makes it so much easier to do what he does in his role as a result of seeing me lead by example. So that's kind of just the first one that came to mind.
0: Yeah. Well, and, uh, happy belated birthday. Thank you. Wow. And in, in terms of leading by example, and I can imagine there's other facets kind of surrounding that as well, in terms of how you think about designing the organization, what kind of approach do you have about that? Like, do you do you have this kind of model of this dream organization you want to build and do you just overly process it on top of that? How do you think about it?
1: Yeah. Uh, um, big one for me as it is with, uh, a lot of people out there is the people that you choose to bring on in that organization and how important it is uh, and how important their role is in the company. Um, so, uh, you know, making sure you find uh, the right people and you take that extra time to get to know them before you know you bring them on board. And, you know, at WISE, it's very common that we'll do a three month internship for any full time hire. And uh, we make it just as much about us letting them find out about everyone on our team and how we do things and uh, as much as it is about us finding out if they're the right fit for us. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely something that, uh, yeah, we probably just uh, started with – because there was, uh, yeah, I don't know how that came to fruition, but uh, now that's pretty common practice for us. I don't think we've actually ever made a full-time hire without them committing about three months of uh, either uh, as an independent contractor first or starting out uh, a little bit uh, uh, low-key and then coming on the team full-time thereafter.
0: Wow. And I'm guessing then it's a natural selection pattern if people during their process go, oh, what? No, I'm not going to do that. And they just (laughs) opt out. I guess it's kind of predetermines the kind of people that you want have to have in your team.
1: Yeah, definitely. Fortunately, uh, most of the people we've done the three-month internship, uh, it's ended up working out. Uh, I actually can't think of any example where it didn't, but uh, yeah.
0: Wow. And you also mentioned how, you know, as as a CEO that um, you have to hire the right people. And in our first meeting, you told me that you were a master delegator And when I was t- telling you that I, I might need to hire an assistant for myself. <laughs> but how how did you get accustomed to that? Like getting used to offloading responsibilities and even decide knowing when to hire someone to take on this new kind of responsibility.
1: Yeah. If you think of delegating, it really comes down to trust, right? Mm -hmm. If, uh, you're looking at someone and you trust them 100% with the 20 tasks that are on your list and you think that they can do it just as good, if not better than you, then uh, really nothing would hold you back from delegating it to that person, right? Mm. So if you bring on the the right uh, people and you build up the right trust with them, then I think it becomes much easier to be a, call it a master delegator. But I'm only a master delegator if I have the right people around me to be able to delegate those uh, things too
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think yeah i think that's i think that's a thing that i i'm trying to get comfortable around i think em- empirically empirically like hypothetically it makes me think oh yeah like i've i've been hired before I, I can't believe they wouldn't trust me and now as i'm in the shoes of trying to think about hiring someone there there is that kind of ooh, like i have to give up control and this kind of um I don't know. This this thought of like letting go of something and trusting someone else. It's it's not as easy as I thought it would be.
1: Yeah, it's uh, definitely um, not easy by any means, but uh, I think it's something that com- becomes inevitable. If, uh, you know, you only have the capacity to do 10 things and you have 100 things on your list and all 100 things need to get done by Friday and it's Monday, um, then, you know, maybe you have to uh, delegate and uh, then, you know, you just get better and better at, de- uh, at delegating as time goes on. But, um, you know, whenever I hire, you, you asked me um, about uh, when do I know it's right to hire and bring someone on board. Um, whenever I uh, hire someone, uh, I make it an act of practice. If, uh, for example, let's simplify uh, simplified example, I'm hiring a marketing guy to take care of all marketing. My first step is to train that guy on marketing everything I know about marketing at the organization, such that he should be just through my training as good as I was at marketing. And then, you know, when I start delegating him stuff with marketing, he's able to utilize everything that I taught him coupled with whatever he was bringing to the table so you know I commonly say if I bring you on board and I hire you for something I'll very quickly make you just as good if not better than me at it and then I'll expect you to be better at it moving forward because you should have my skill set plus your own and whatever expertise you bring to the table.
0: Yeah I guess I get a 12-hour crash course on Everything you know, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, twelve hours or two hours or a hundred hours or whatever <laughs> it takes. But uh, that's kind of how I try to train and then delegate.
0: Mm-hmm. And on this entrepreneurial journey, like, to you know, you had influences from your parents, your siblings, but I, I'd also like to know. Then, a, a common question I like to ask all the entrepreneurs is, "Who's the third most influential person you have in as like a role model or just?" in life in general and I ask third because usually a lot of people will say the parents as their first two <laughs> so I'm wondering for you who, who kind of comes to mind? You know I try
1: to pick a new role model almost every month so uh, it's uh, what do I need to get through that month or that half year or that year And, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's not like I know everything, but anything I don't know, I'm interested to go and learn about. So... If, you know, I'm uh, uh, at three employees and I'm going to hire 10 and I'm going to go from three to 10 and I know the culture is going to completely change, I'm not going to all of a sudden just naturally be the best person at making sure that the culture changes according, you know, accordingly perfectly, but I'm going to go pick up a book and I'm going to read about how to make sure the culture changes properly. So um, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily have a third person, but uh, anytime I don't know anything, Um, I'm uh, the most you know I'm a very active learner Um, I'll actively seek out what it is the you know the gaps in my knowledge to end up with still an optimal result and uh, I think that uh, yeah maybe it just uh, changes depending on what I need to go through
0: (laughs) do you mind sharing uh, then the role model for this month or this current problem that you are hoping to address
1: Yeah, I recently read uh, the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm. Have you read that? Yes, I have. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we're going uh, uh, through fundraising and... uh, you know, I don't know all that much about fundraising, so you know, I went to look uh, for a book for which I could learn from a more experienced entrepreneur who, you know, went is going, you know, has already gone through a thousand times over whatever I'm going through, and uh, you know, uh, highly recommend that book to anyone who hasn't read it and. Uh, You know that's been uh, call it instrumental uh, to some degree in my life. uh, Being able to have that resource, catalog that information, pick up that knowledge, and uh, be able to you know go back to work with a different frame of mind.
0: Mm -hmm. And and you mentioned about how when you you decide to fundraise, it's because you now have an idea. You should have an idea of like how you're going to spend that money, how to add you know oil to the fire, so to speak how did that like what what was your kind of realization like what you know what kind of strategy that came up to you that said okay i think now is the time to fundraise like, how did you feel it was like the right time
1: you know with wise um we uh, originally bootstrapped wise as well mm-hmm. and uh, in our first year we expanded to three universities and in our you know everything was really good we were going into our second year and uh we were going to expand to six universities But we said, whoa, you know, if we had X number of dollars, you know, we could expand to 12 universities. We have all the pieces of our puzzle, you know, checked off. We can expand to these 12 universities. But the only thing we're missing is the funds to be able to afford, you know, going from, you know, instead of six, going to 12. So he said, well, if the only thing that we're missing is a little bit of money to be able to execute on going to twice as many universities... It seems like a pretty good idea to just raise that little bit of money if you really believe that you can get a much higher return on investment. As an simple example, so that's when we, uh, you know, did our, our first friends and family round, and now, you know, that we've expanded to twelve universities, and uh, you know, our KPIs were really good, and uh, we're really excited about the progress. You know, and let's say we could go to twenty four universities next year, but you know, if we raise funds, we could go to fifty universities mm. next year. Uh, and we could expand into the U.S. and, you know, we can expand into other departments like MCAT, GMAT, LSAT, CFA, CPA. And, you know, we have a lot of, you know, uh, uh of the boxes checked off. Um, but we just need that little bit of money. And that's the only thing we're missing. We have everything else figured out. So. I really, you know, the, the notion of putting gas on the fire is when you have everything figured out and you're good to go to generate a large return on investment and a little bit of money is going to end up producing a lot more money. And, you know, that's the time that I, I feel good about fundraising. It's uh, not to try to figure out uh, how to overcome a particular problem or something like that. It's about everything already going really good and it can go even better just with a little bit of money. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way I look at it.
0: Oh, no, yeah, I think I love that. And it's, it's amazing how you, you already had the three universities and you already – it's kind of like you have the proof of concept now. Three universities accepted. And so now you have this equation. It's like a plug-and-play. Like, you know X, X dollars will equal X universities. Oh, this is increasing dollars. Yeah, exactly. Great. Thank and, you,
1: uh, probably Paul Graham, you know, raise money for something that's working, not something that you need money to make work.
0: Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. And as we kind of hit upon this final leg um, of our interview – A couple questions I wanted to ask is uh, one particular is if the 20-year-old Cyrus were to look at you right now where you're at in this beautiful office in Vancouver so I'm guessing that Cyrus is probably honestly like third year Miguel, going to graduate in a year if that Cyrus were to look at where you're right now what do you think the emotional reaction would be? Uh,
1: Contentment <laughs> he'd uh, probably, uh, 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 yeah, he'd be uh, pretty understanding of where I, I kind of am today, I, th- I think. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, yeah, if he had enough insight into knowing everything that's happened throughout that time frame, it would be maybe different than if he didn't know. He just knew where you were. But uh, I guess that might be a different question depending which way you go.
0: Mm hmm. <laughs> and if if you could go back in time and give that cyrus any kind of advice or even a friend of Cyrus is at that age any kind of advice what kind of advice would you give
1: i would uh emphasize that the you know taking that a full month before deciding what i was going to pursue for the next 10 years and uh you know, I, I can't remember exactly who told me it, but they're like, you know, you're going to get into a career graduating university and, you know, you should really be thinking, what could you do for 10 years? And thinking, you know, in, you know, Gary V, for example, always is talking about thinking of in 50 years, Sprint's now, you know? Um, so I, I think the notion of, uh Choosing something when you graduate university that you could, you know, dedicate ten full years to and have no regrets, and thinking in a much longer time horizon than most people are used to thinking is, uh, you know, very
0: important. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to what happens for the next for the next ten years. Then I guess you've done this for seven years, so you got three more years <laughs> until the ten year mark is up and. I'm looking forward to see what the next what you think about for the next ten years.
1: Yeah, uh, what I'm what I think about for the next ten years.
0: Yeah, do you have an answer for that? Have you uh, thought about that?
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I hope to uh, uh, stay in the education sector, um, mm-hmm. you know, for the next ten years and continue uh, pursuing uh, trying to make as big of an impact as I possibly can on. Uh, you know, helping, uh, you know, learners learn better. And uh, I just think there's so many moves uh, to be made. Uh, I hope more people, you know, rush into uh, education to fix the the many, many different problems that, uh, you know, are, are, are everyone basically can relate to from a little kid to a grandmother. And uh, yeah, you know, I hope I'm uh, here to stay.
0: Yeah. And thank you as part of someone who has gone through the education sector and someone who might have maybe children go through the education sector too hopefully they'll benefit from the kind of, work, kind of work that you and others in the ed tech world do and so as we kind of end this interview is there anything that you wish that we had maybe covered or you want to kind of leave uh, my listeners with
1: No, Um, I think you did a remarkable job and I'm lucky to have uh, such a nice gentleman walk me through my first uh, podcast and uh, um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, listen to more and more of your podcasts as uh, they continue to come out. So keep up the great work and uh, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Uh, uh, Likewise, thank you so much for your time and your kind words, Cyrus.
1: Appreciate it. Have a good
0: day, Daniel. Thanks, you too. all right thank you for listening to the podcast i hope the story was inspiring to you it hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had and maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it doing something different maybe challenging yourself being courageous who knows but regardless i'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest and if you would like to somehow in some way contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that i'm trying to build with the greater omd ventures platform really think about being a stakeholder in the platform and the quick way to do that is to go to my website oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page i believe it's oldmandan.com stakeholder and the link is also down below and that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe follow to get more updates on the free content but at the same time also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee that's just how i put it and you can buy me a coffee a month coffee a week or coffee every day of the year and think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you, so you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way, so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.